Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anides, and I am joined by my co-host, Josh. Josh, how are you doing, man? Phil, I'm doing great. I'm always happy to revisit the great company that was Strikeforce and analyze what what's made the promotion so successful and impactful. And this is going to be a great show, talking about Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez. And these guys are so well-matched, so I'm really looking forward to talking about this show with you. Yeah, I, I am too, and I'll just let the listeners know I am dealing with uh, some sinus issues, and so I may sound a little more nasal than I normally do, so apologies on that, but uh, that's not the most important thing we're going to be talking about today, thankfully, but for those uh, for our new listeners, this is uh, this show is called Inside the Hexagon. It's about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2016 until 2013. And on this episode, we will be discussing Melendez versus Thompson, which was a, 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 the main event was a very long-awaited Strike Force lightweight title scrap between champion Gilbert Melendez and challenger Josh Thompson. Really, the best matchup that Strike Force could make at 155 pounds, and you know, boy, did these. Uh, did these guys to deliver? And so I'm looking forward to, to talking about this. I, you know, show was really all about the main event. Uh, Melendez and Thompson brought the house down, uh, but it was, uh, wasn't really like really well attended. Uh, Josh, were you surprised by that? Well, yes, yes. Then no, um, strike. The thing I was going to talk about today was how strike force as great as it was in terms of building those stars that would become big in the UFC, a lot of the shows were a little bit inconsistent. So we'd have these shows that almost filled the house. And then we'd have shows like this one, which were not that well attended. So I think that because Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez were, although they were very popular, it was kind of a, a one match card. So had they stacked it with a few other people that people had known about, Maybe they would have been able to put more people in there, but I think they're just resting it all in the fact that it was two guys in their prime ready to go at it. Yeah, absolutely. No, no question about it. And we're gonna. I think we're gonna spend a good amount of this episode talking about um, that fight. So, but let's let's jump into the fallout from Shamrock versus Lee. That was the last event uh, before this one. Uh, before we get into that, I did want to mention there was a couple drug test failures that I came across from a past Strike Force events that uh, Strike Force event that I missed. Uh, so I did want to bring those up after four men enter one man survives, which was the one night middleweight tournament won by George Santiago that took place on November 16, 2007. We had two drug test failures tournament alternate Dennis Hallman, who had submitted Jeremiah Metcalf with a heel hook at 139 of the first round tested positive for Nandrolone, uh, an anabolic anabolic steroid. And then fellow prelim fighter Alex Crispin, who had gotten a unanimous decision victory over Clint Coronel popped for an anabolic steroid that I cannot pronounce, but I'm going to try desoxymethyl testosterone testosterone no no there's no testosterone it's just testosterone desoxymethyl testosterone i think that's the way to say it but anyways both <laughs> fighters were fined 2500 and suspended for a year uh, so apologies on missing that news uh, i'll tell you josh real quick i found a uh, the reason i the way i got this was number one we when we do this research sometimes i will find the news of uh, you know, the, none of the tested fighters tested positive or, you know, I'll see a news article and then I'll know. And then sometimes I won't see any sort of article. Well, there is a, a database out there that I don't know how accurate it is, but it claims to have all of the MMA drug tests that have been, you know, been failed in MMA history. 
Hmm. And so I went through there. Uh, I only found eight for strike force. So there weren't like a ton of them and you could say, well, their fighters were clean or, you know, probably uh, just more questionable about the, the amount of drug testing. Cause this is way back, you know, before USADA and all that stuff. Yeah. But anyways, that's where I get the information from. All right. So back to Shamrock versus Lee. Uh, so after sustaining a broken arm during the main event, Frank Shamrock would be out for a year recovering the newly minted champion. Kung Lee would actually never defend the title as he relinqu- relinquished it six months later due to his burgeoning, burgeoning movie career, which would set up a future title fight between Jake Shields and Jason Mayhem Miller uh, the following year. Uh, and you can actually hear uh, my interview with Kung. Uh, we just ran that uh, for our last episode. And we actually talked about the fight with Frank. It is such a great discussion, specifically really talking about his mindset and, and just everything that went into that fight for the title. And then also talking about how movies kind of took him out and, and that sort of thing. So do you uh, think, make sure you check that out. Do you think Phil that, that Kung wanted no part of Jake Shields. Uh, what do you think would have happened if they actually battled? That's interesting. I, I don't think Jake had, so it's, you know, Jake's normally a welterweight. So that's why this is a little bit surprising to me that he ended up moving up to 185. I mean, think about when he went back to strike force or I'm sorry, when he went to the UFC, he fought at, at 170 cause he took on GSP. GSP right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's one of those guys that could obviously go back and forth between the two weight classes, you know, there was no welterweight titles. So at that point, so maybe, maybe Jake wanted just there. Hey, there's no welterweight division right now. We're not focusing on that. So Jake decides to move up because there's an opportunity to fight for the title there. But supposedly I, so anyway, I, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know, but um, for whatever reason, he decided to, to, to go up to 185 and, and, you know, between him and Kung, Obviously, Jake is not a stand-up guy, so Jake shoots in, takes Kung down. I think he would get him eventually, although Kung did have very good takedown defense, obviously. So, I, I, but I think Jake, I think Jake eventually gets him down and gets a submission on him. So that that'd be my thought. But um, he man, would just he, have to he, survive Kung's kicks. Yeah, I was to gonna say he'd take enough. a beating. He would take yeah. a beating getting there for sure. So. Anyways, but uh, also on that card, Gilbert Melendez had defended his lightweight title uh, against. Uh, the injury replacement, Gabe Lemley, who was uh, in, in there in place of Josh Thompson, who had injured his shoulder. So Gabe uh, was was game, but he lost, and Gilbert was finally able to set up that long-away title defense against Josh Thompson. And then lastly, there was originally supposed to be an inaugural strike force welterweight champion decided at Shamrock versus Lee, which was the aforementioned Jake Shields, and he was going to take on Drew Fickett. Uh, for the title at Shamrock versus Lee. However, Shields had come up injured, so that was pushed back, and we wouldn't see a strike force welterweight champion for another year and a half after Melendez versus Thompson, So, uh, which we will obviously get to eventually. All right, so now let's jump into Melendez versus Thompson itself. On April 25th uh, of 2008, it was announced that the event would be taking place. The only fight announced for that uh, card at that time was Josh Thompson taking on Gilbert Melendez. Uh, that was obviously the big fight that Strikeforce believed would draw a lot of fans and eyeballs. The full fight card would be revealed shortly. It included Bobby Southworth defending his light heavyweight title against Anthony Ruiz in a rematch. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Metcalf would take on Raymond Daniels, who was a kickboxing kickboxing star who we will discuss in a little bit. Uh, Nam Phan versus Billy Evangelista. Elena Maxwell would be taking on the Strike Force debuting Misha Tate. Chris Cariasso would be taking on Anthony Antdog Figueroa. Jesse Gillespie would take on Dave Martin, Bobby Stack versus Jose Palacios, Alvin Kakdak versus Brian Caraway. Cirillo Padillo versus Jesse Jones, Eric Jacob versus 
Alexander Trevino, and then finally Josh Neal versus Travis Johnson, which would not end up happening. Uh, but so a few of these fights would not would not end up taking place. But this would actually be pretty close to the final uh, event card. So adding support to this card would be the uh, the title fight rematch that I mentioned. Bobby Southworth taking on Andy Ru- Anthony Ruiz. As you might remember, Ruiz had won a non-title fight over Southworth via TKO, coming by way of a deep cut at Four Men Enter, One Man Survives the previous November. Now these two would tangle again, but this time with the belt on the line. Uh, and then later on, a very intriguing bout was going to be added as Mr. International Shoney Carter was scheduled to fight rising strike force star Luke Stewart. However, that fight would not happen as Shoney would injure his hand in training and withdraw. And so instead, Joe Diesel Riggs was slotted uh, to, to take his place and Riggs was coming off a loss via slam at strike force at the dome that injured his back and required surgery. So he was going, he'd recover, was going to step in. Unfortunately, Riggs versus Stewart would not end up happening either, which we'll get into the why behind that later in this episode. All right, we like to also give kind of the, the, the context of what's going on in the MMA world uh, at the, the time of the Strike Force event that we're talking about. So we're going to talk about the UFC champions as well as the closest UFC event or at least the closest major UFC event to the event that we're discussing in Strike Force. BJ Penn still the lightweight champion. GSP was now the undisputed welterweight champion after TKOing Matt Serra with knees to the body at UFC 83. Uh, this reign would last. It, it's kind of well, technically it lasts until the end of Strike Force, uh, but they do bring in a uh, do, do they do end up doing an interim title fight, which I believe Carlos Condit won in 2012. Uh, but GSP actually holds on to the title until 2013. Technically, uh, Anderson Silva was still the reigning middleweight champ. We've discussed that he is the champion the entire time um, that Strife Force is in existence once he wins the title in 2006. And then when Melendez versus Thompson took place, Quentin Rampage Jackson was still the light heavyweight champ, but that was about to change. We're going to talk about that in just a second. And Minotaur Noguera was still the interim heavyweight champion after beating Tim Sylvia via third round guillotine at UFC 81 in February with Randy the Natural Couture still technically the UFC heavyweight champion. All right, so the closest major UFC event to Melendez versus Thompson was UFC 86, which happened on July 5th, 2008 at the Mandalay Bay Event Center in Las Vegas, Nevada. The event drew very, very well, getting almost 11,000 in attendance for a gate of $3.35 million. And again, just for context, we'll talk about the gate for this card that we're, we're going to be discussing here, and, and we'll get into that later, but... You you know how exciting was it? I'm sure for Strike Force to cross the one million dollar gate number for Shamrock versus Lee, which was the biggest event that they could put on that time at that time. I believe it drew one point two million dollars at the gate, and meanwhile UFC is drawing three point three five million dollars, basically almost three times the amount. So it kind of puts things in perspective when we talk about Strike Force being a, a legitimate challenger from a business standpoint to the UFC. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you have any thoughts, but that that just it kind of puts it in perspective that I don't think it was as much as a competition of a competition as most of us would like to think that it was. Well, yeah, and this is sort of the heyday of the UFC too. I mean, it is really erupting at this time, and you know, Strikeforce obviously never was on par from a business perspective, but they certainly were on the rise, and they they certainly were a company that had figured something out and as you know it just takes a few breaks it takes some national tv and a a great fight Um, it takes just a little bit of recognition for the public to jump on board and think that this is the next really cool thing i mean i think that also the difference is 
uh, Strike Force held so many of their shows in San Jose, and it was such a, a regional promotion. Whereas UFC was in Las Vegas, and so they could charge more money per ticket, and they would have just a larger gate because it's it's Las Vegas, and you know it's not it's not San Jose. San Jose, yes, Silicon Valley, but it's a different sort of market in terms of people who are going to walk up to the show. So yeah, I mean definitely the UFC is by far number one, but. I mean, I've never seen a number two come as close as Strikeforce did. Now, Bellator's got great promotion, but it's... It has a lot, a lot more money behind it, you know, with it's the, an entire know, Viacom, yeah. Yeah, Bellator was never from the ground up. Um, it was very much with Viacom basically putting it on, you know, TV and, and making it work because it's part of their properties. So, so yeah, it's, you know, it's not UFC, but they, they had a lot to be proud of. Yeah, and you, you brought up the fact that Strike Force was very much a regional promotion in a lot of ways, and, and they absolutely were. They were very much West Coast-based for a long time. Obviously, that starts to change, but they never drew the numbers uh, just as far as attendance goes. They just never drew the numbers that um, that the UFC would. They never ever – their first event was their most successful from a pure attendance standpoint. They never got back – to over 18,000 again in, in their seven years of existence. So yeah, they try to, they try to go to Nashville practically killed the promotion. So uh, yeah. Which, them. which was a whole other, I can't <laughs> wait to discuss that. That's going to be fun. But they, yeah. you know, they, they ended up branching out. Obviously they went to Miami, they went to these different, uh, they went across the States, but I mean, UFC by this point, they were doing events in, in, in Ireland and, you know, they were, they were already international. So it was just a much, they were so far ahead of the game. You know, when it came to that. And as you, we learned in our, our very first interview um, that I did with Scott Coker, again, in the available in the archives, but Scott was very much San Jose based. He was very much West coast. He's still San Jose based, you know? So it's just one of those things where um, Scott didn't necessarily have this grand vision of, you know, he just wants to have a successful promotion and do the best they can and, and put on the biggest fights they can. But I don't necessarily know that Scott has, you know, that cutthroat killer instinct that, you know, that a guy like Dana has. And so, you know, I, I think Dana just had a broader vision and, and executed it. And, and so they've done fantastic and it's, it's, yeah, that's okay. That doesn't, you know, not everybody's going to be number one. So, uh, but strike force, you know, again, you kind of put this in perspective that, you know, just with the closest major pay-per-view, they were just not even on the same planet at this point. But anyways, all right. So UFC uh, 86 also garnered 540,000 pay-per-view buys, which is quite strong for that time period. Uh, it was headlined by UFC light heavyweight fight between champion Quentin Rampage Jackson and challenger Forrest Griffin. So uh, UFC 86 was truly the culmination of the ultimate fighter team Rampage versus team Forrest in that the two coaches finally fought. Um, they did have the season for, uh, season finale was, uh, I think about a week before it was technically closer to this strike force event that we're talking about. But I, like I said, I wanted to talk, discuss the closest major event. and is, But it was interesting that kind of they had some issues on that show. Forrest team had won the competition when CB Dalloway had submitted Amir Sadala in the series finale. Interestingly, Sadala had actually submitted Dalloway in the semifinals to earn his place in the finals. But after Team Forrest fighter Jesse Taylor, who was supposed to be in the finals, had smashed a limo window and terrorized some women at a hotel bar, he'd been sent home. Dalloway earned another opportunity uh, to be to to continue on in the in the tournament when he decisioned Tim Critter and then he went on to avenge his earlier loss and submitted Sadala 
in the final. Uh, on the UFC 86 undercard, Melvin Gillard KO'd Dennis Seaver in pretty brutal fashion. Uh, that's a KO that's worth work, worth looking up. Gabriel, Gabriel Gonzaga got a key lock submission or an Americana submission over Justin McCauley. And then on the main card, former Strike Force competitor Tyson Griffin got the got the decision win over Marcus Aurelio. Josh Koscheck took a unanimous decision nod against Chris Lytle. And then again, Forrest Griffin dethroned Quentin Rampage Jackson via unanimous decision in the fight of the night and won the UFC light heavyweight title. Wow. Yeah, pretty memorable event. All right, so we are now arrived at Strike Force Melendez versus Thompson. It took place on June 27th, 2008 at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California and drew 7,288 fans. You know, I want to just read a little bit from Wrestling Observer Weekly, which is, you know, a newsletter that's, you know, based in the Bay Area, Dave Meltzer, Brian Alvarez, and uh, they were there. So it's just, this is a little bit interesting, uh, describing sort of what happened uh, from that perspective. Um there were 7,288 fans in the stands, and if you include luxury boxes, which were mostly packed, it had to top 8,000. Paid was about 6,750, which has to be considered a great sign to draw that well without either Frank Shamrock or Kung Lee, even though it was the smallest crowd for a Strike Force event in San Jose to date. Uh, the newsletter notes that the crowd heat also wasn't there for uh, Thompson and Melendez. Obviously, Lee had a lot of supporters, him being a Vietnamese-American. And uh, Shamrock, uh, according to the newsletter, Shamrock is the best in the business at building up a fight. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting perspective. Also, Meltzer noted that SmackDown, WWE SmackDown, had run the arena about 26 days after or um, sorry before the event and they had about 6,800 people there so he was sort of talking about how the show at Strike Force looked like it was smaller because they didn't do the same things that wrestling does to uh, cover the arena and cover the empty seats. WWE has the big set that blocks off the arena and they sell all tickets together and curtain off the unsold part of the arena. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you've been in fight promotion, uh, Phil, but WWE does that really well. Whoever's there, they make it look like it's jam-packed because they pack everybody together. I was at a house show once, by the way. It was a house show. And they made everybody sit on one side of the building because it just looked like everybody was together. Um, but they're just sort of comparing how how WWE had ran that show and made it look packed with less fans. But at this event, it was taped off and visually it appeared to be a smaller crowd. So that may have played into a little bit of the enthusiasm that we'll talk about in the main event from the crowd. Yeah, it's one of those tricks of the trade for sure. Um, and it, I, is um, for Bay Area sports fans, you'll probably know what I'm talking about here. But you know, the Giants and the Oakland A's have always there's always been this battle of the Bay. But there's there's really no battle. I mean, San Francisco, the Giants are just so much more popular in the Bay Area than the A's to the point where like the upper deck of the A's stadium, like if you ever drive by there. Um, I mean, it's been a long time. I've lived in the Bay Area in seven years, but when when I would, you would see like the top area was tarped off, and like the tarps were um, like sun, like wet sun beaten. Like you could like they were worn out because that's how long it's been since the A's have drawn, you know, those types of crowds. 
uh, that, you know, it's pretty common to do that in MMA and pro wrestling as well, that if you don't sell for an event, you know, you just, you try to, it just looks better, you know, it makes people feel better and it just looks better on TV and all that stuff. So pretty, pretty common. And, you know, I, I think it's worth, I guess there's pluses and minuses that, yeah, they could draw over 7,000 without Frank, without Kung, you know, that's, I, that's a good sign for sure. But at the same time, I'm kind of also like, that's the best, probably the most marketable fight that you can put on without like making a major coup and signing, you know, a big, like Anderson Silva or George St. Pierre or somebody, you know, a huge UFC star outside of signing like a major, major star and bringing them in or, or somebody from WWE, you know, so like a Brock Lesnar or somebody like that at that point, I don't, the fact that you, your sec, probably second most marketable fight, Oh, you know, drew didn't draw double figures. I, I or, you know, draw over 10,000 fans. I actually wouldn't feel too good about that. I, I, I don't know how you, what your thought is, but I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a step back that that's the best you can do, especially when you consider that when they went to Washington state, uh, if I remember correctly, I think for the Bob Sapp fight, I think it was around 7,000. So I, I think that was, you know, as abominable as a fight as that was, I don't think it was much better when they, you know, when they did that. So yeah, I, I'm actually, I, I was kind of disappointed when I read that personally. Yeah. Well, part of it too is Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez really liked each other. And so there was not this like garage match that was fueling it. It was more of these guys are former training partners for a short time and they're about even in their skills and they're going to go out there and give their all. And as much as fight fans might appreciate that, Great, great, uh, you know, great shows need to rely on sort of that walk-up attendance and those people to be just like, oh, there's a great fight. I want to watch that because these guys really hate each other. There's great promotion. And that may have been part of it, too, was that these guys liked each other and they were just going to put on a good show. I think I think that's very fair. And I talked about that a little bit with George Garcia from MMA Junkie again back in the archives. Check that out. Uh, but I, we did talk about that a little bit. That I'm a little bit more of a purist and I like, hey, it's just a competition and we're not trying to you know, hurt each other for the sake of hurting each other and all that stuff. But at the same time, the fights that I really want to see are the big feuds. You know, I was always interested in, in Ken Shamrock versus Tito Ortiz. I, you know, I was would have been super interested in Ken Shamrock versus uh, versus Frank Shamrock. You know, it's I even when I watch UFC now or I watch Bellator now, if I know that there's some bad blood, and you can tell when it's just talk, and then when it's an actual real feud, I want to see that. You know, like that's that's I'm a pro wrestling fan. Like I want to see feuds, and and so with Gilbert and Josh being so respectful of each other, and we'll we'll talk about that when we get to the fight, but being as respectful of each other as they were. Yeah. I think that's a little bit of a harder sell. I mean, maybe if they, you know, said something about each other's wives or girlfriends or <laughs> something like that, maybe they would have sold a couple thousand extra tickets. You know, I, I, I obviously hindsight's 2020, but I think that's a good point. I, I think they very well could have hurt each other more than, or hurt the, uh, uh, hurt the, the attendance and the ticket selling more than let's, they otherwise would have. Let's face it. Gilbert needed Paul Heyman in his corner, and Josh needed Jimmy Cornette, and that thing would have sold out. <laughs> yeah, this is where having man and and you know it's kind of funny like with with some of the like Ali and Malkikawa and some of the different managers you see in MMA today. Man, you could actually see some of these guys going after each other. I think they actually have at times too. I think there actually have been some some <laughs> fights and stuff. So. 
but yeah. Um, anyway, all right. Well, let's uh, let's get back into the uh, the event itself. So, as this was another HDNet fights presentation, Kenny Rice was back on the call, but this time MMA legend and former Inside the Hexagon guest Boss Rutten would be co- providing color commentary. So, pretty cool to see Boss on a Strike Force event and calling the action alongside Kenny Rice. So, I, I was excited to see that. Uh, I did want to mention we were able to find video for most of these fights, but not all of them, and we'll make the uh, we'll, we'll let you know which ones as we as we go along. On the other card, undercard, Alex Trevino defeated Eric Jacob via submission, uh, coming by way of armbar at 37 seconds of the first round in a lightweight uh, fi- a lightweight fight. This is a pretty quick one. Trevino got got an armbar and then subsequently got the tap pretty quickly. Very smooth on the ground. I thought it was. I thought Trevino actually looked really good, and I was hoping to see more from him. Uh, he would be back in strike force several more times, while Jacob would not. But I wanted to mention this, Eric Jacob. This guy, he ended his career at one and nine, which is, as I've said before, I have all the respect for anybody that can step in the cage. All mm-hmm. tons of respect to Mr. Jacob for having the guts to do that. But I couldn't believe this as I was looking at his record. All 10 of his fights took place in 2008. That's right. This guy <laughs> fought 10 times in his career, including this fight, all in 2008, and he only won one of those fights. I, I, I'm, there can't be anybody else in MMA that fought that many times in one year and never, ever fought in another calendar year. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, he's smart. He made his money and left the game. You know, who cares? I, I guess. <laughs> I highly doubt he made a lot of money. All right, so in a, uh, a light heavyweight battle, George Interiano defeated Travis Johnson VTAKO, coming by way of doctor stoppage at the end of the second round. This was the MMA debut for both fighters. Uh, Interiano came out here looking like Tong Po from Jean-Claude Van Damme's Kickboxer. Uh, with that, He had this long ponytail on the kind of the top of his head, which I, I, I thought, hey, man, I was just like, oh, he's trying to look like Tong Po. Um, but this fight was all in the feet, all in Tiriano. He cut Johnson, who was nicknamed the Last Dragon. Speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of kung fu or, or karate movies from the eighties, uh, but he cut up Johnson under his right eye and just really beat him up for two rounds. I mean, it, it was not a technical masterpiece, but it was it was pretty entertaining. But yeah, not 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 a huge fan of the ponytail. I gotta say. Well, let me just say this before I comment on the ponytail. I forgot to mention, and you forgot to mention. Trevino's pink tights. Do you remember those? They, oh they were, yeah. So like, I was like, this is why uh, Dana White wanted to go to like Reebok uniforms later on, you know, because those those pink tights, those were pathetic. They're just like, I know he won and he was great, but like, give me a break, you know. He, they look like they were made by Fancy Pants's mom or grandma or whoever made his clothes, kind of thing. But weren't you bothered by those pink tights? Did you notice them? I, I they didn't really stand out to me too much. I mean, I noticed them for sure, but uh, yeah, there was. They were. They probably won the award for for worst uh, <laughs> worst trunks on this event. At least they extended over most of the thigh, unlike yeah, some there other you fighters. Go. Okay, so you know the ponytail. I thought it was kind of cool because it did look like he was like you know like you had mentioned he's like a TV fighter or something like that or a movie fighter. I wondered about the rules and how that would work because I could see in a really competitive close fight that ponytail somehow getting in the way and i mean i know you can't pull hair but but i could see in some kind of grappling that it would come into play somehow so i personally think they you know they should have some rule on length of hair i which i which i i wonder if they do now i one of the things that made me think of was uh Hoist Gracie versus Chemo in the early UFCs. Do you did you ever see that fight? No, no. Did they? You got to look that up because he grabs uh, Gracie grabs 
Kimo's ponytail, which was not nearly as long as this guy's, and he used it like he was using <laughs> it to like hit him in the face and like you know to pull his head. I'm like that. Well, that was stupid. You probably in a sport that had no rules at that point. That was probably kind of dumb. Probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have had a ponytail going in there. This guy would have been a sitting duck with the length of this one. I mean, you could have wrapped it around your forearm and just you know punched him in the face fifty times. So, I I mean, but I I wonder if there's some. I I've never heard of that, but I wonder if there's some sort of rule against it now. But even if there wasn't, I just I think it's kind of disrespectful to your opponent because you could totally, uh, what's her name on WWE, uh, Bianca Belair, like you could totally oh, yeah. hurt somebody with it if you're not, you know, like you whip around for like a spinning back fist or a spinning back kick or something, and that thing whips him in the face. I I'd, I'd be pretty mad. So, but he could but, have yeah. at least he could have at least had the gimmick where he pulled it himself and then rammed his head three times into the turnbuckle yeah. after he won. <laughs> yeah, you know, make some <laughs> yeah. make some money. You know, we need come on, we need Frank Shamrock to tell these guys how to promote fights. Okay, quickly though, um, Johnson. You know, getting back to away from the ponytail and <laughs> talking about this fight. Uh, you know, I, I felt like Johnson did not look like he wanted to be there. Um, he, he just did not look like he had his heart in it. He fought a little scared, a little bit reminded me of Bob Sapp. Um, I, I, I felt like he was just too casual, too cavalier. He was like r- r- walking outside to take the trash out. It didn't look like he had any sort of intensity. And he was left-handed. And I don't know. I mean, MMA, left-handed fighters, obviously works for Conor McGregor, but... I don't know. I think it's it's uh it's and weird. Rich Franklin and Rich Franklin. Okay. It, there there are guys out there that have had success being southpaws. Yeah, it's just weird to watch, you know, the unconventional staff. In boxing, it's a huge advantage. Um, right. we just uh, don't see Bernard, it too much. Bernard Hopkins, right? Um, he might have yeah. been both um ambidextrous. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the executioner was left-handed. I yeah. think, or at least I think he fought southpaw. I think he switched back and forth. Guy like Pernell Whitaker uh, left-handed, you know, it's a big advantage, but, uh, yeah, this fight, I just felt like, uh, yeah, Interiano was just, you know, dominant and it was probably because of the ponytail. Very much the stronger fighter. All right. Moving on to a welterweight battle between Cirillo Padilla NATO. He defeated Jesse Jones Vienna's decision. Could not find any video of this. So we're relying on MMA weekly's recap for the details. And here's what the article said. Padillo controlled the action for the first two rounds with takedowns and ground control as Jones was unable to stop the takedown in the final round. Jones dropped Padilla and swarmed with a barrage, but was unable to finish the fight. And again, was controlled for the rest of the fight. All right, then we move on to a 140-pound matchup. This would be Brian Caraway defeating Alvin Kaktak via submission, coming by way of rear naked choke at 139 of the first round. Uh, the then-boyfriend of Misha Tate, Kid Lightning Brian Caraway, was 10-2, and two, definitely primed for a good showing and looking at maybe somebody that was going to get a longer look. Uh, Kaktak was fought in, had fought in strike force a couple times and would be a good test for Caraway. Uh, Caraway, I got to, you know, jumping into the fight itself, Caraway was on Cactac like white on rice from the <laughs> outset. I mean, he shot in for a takedown, never let his opponent get away. He advanced to half guard immediately after getting that takedown, and Caraway was looking for opportunities, eventually securing Cactac's back and getting the rear naked choke. Very nice showing for a future UFC fighter. Phil, can I talk a little bit about Brian Caraway? You Just, may. Will you indulge me Grant, here? Granted. Okay. Okay, so first of all, Caraway looked great. Like he went in there, all chael in, like takedown, 
He was intense. Then he turned into Khabib. He was just on the guy, just would not let him breathe. And it was a really impressive performance. And if you're watching that, you're thinking this Brian Caraway guy is going to be something special in MMA. I do want to take note of his nickname, Kid Lightning. Come on. He's just switching around. It's the Lightning Kid. I, I think that works better. Um, and as we know, as a wrestling fan, you know, that was um, uh, definitely would have taken him a lot oh, farther. Yeah. farther <laughs> in his you don't remember yeah, that. Sean, you, Sean uh, uh, come on. Um, Almost Sean Sean Mor- uh, yeah, Sean. Wal- almost said Sean Morley, Val Venus. I, <laughs> yeah, the kid, lightning kick definitely sounds a lot better than kid lightning. Kid Remember? lightning is sounds more like boxing because you know they have a lot of those kid X, you know, kid Galahad. Yeah, 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 you know. yeah. Nicknames that sort of thing, but. Yeah, I'd I'd rather be called the Lightning Kid than Kid Lightning. Do, but yeah. do you do you remember when he debuted on Raw? He did the first week he was the Cannonball Kid. Yeah. The yeah. second week he was the Kamikaze Kid, and when he won, he was the Lightning Kid. Yeah, you know, they kind of they switched his gimmicks up a lot. Yeah. No, no, I, I I wasn't watching during that time. I just know I just know the history. But yeah. Anyways, well. Um, both uh, both Brian and Alvin will be back in Strike Force in the future, so we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss them more uh, in future episodes. In a lightweight t- uh, lightweight match, Bobby Stack defeated Jose Palacios via unanimous decision. Both Stack and Palacios were coming off of wins, and both had won in Strike Force. So Strike Force, so this was a, a good test for both. Uh, both these fighters uh, jumping into the, the fight itself. These two, I mean, it was all action at the outset. Palacios got the better of stack on the feet, including knocking out uh, his mouth guard, actually. However, stack was able to get things to the mat and establish himself there. He got a takedown at the beginning of the second round, which he rode for most of the round getting swept not, not long before the bell, but not, not really much that Palacios could do with that. Mostly the same in the third with stack getting a nice slam takedown from a waist lock, uh, clearly, it was a clear a decision win for Stack, and, and that's exactly what we got. I like the mouthpiece shot. That was really cool. It was a nice punch. You see the guy's mouthpiece is, uh, comes out of his mouth. Um, and it was just a good slugfest. You know, I like that kind of fight. Uh, did you ever see when James Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson's mouthpiece? And he, Oh, yeah. He, oh, I my mean, God. I've watched that a gazillion times. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, but it was, there's something about it wasn't as good as that. I will say it was not nothing, as good as that. But nothing yeah. as good as that because this poor Mike Tyson and I love Mike Tyson. Uh, he he was so out of it. <laughs> it took the time to pick the mouthpiece put, up and, and put it back in. Try, that's how, it's that's like, how out of it he was. Yeah. It's like hanging out of his mouth. It's like just get up, dude. They'll put your mouthpiece back in. But um, yeah, there's something about seeing a guy lose his mouth guard or mouthpiece that. He was like, "Damn, that must have hurt." Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was it was an okay fight. It wasn't fantastic, but it was all right. Both both these guys would fight in strike force again, so we'll talk about them more in the future. I did want to mention we discussed this a little bit earlier, uh, but Joe Riggs was scheduled to fight Luke Stewart. He was interviewed after this fight that we just discussed to talk about why the California State Athletic Commission con, con, Commission not condition had denied him his license to fight the day before at the weigh-ins. Uh, again, Riggs was to replace Shoney Carter in his bout against Luke Stewart. And Diesel explained on the mic that he'd been taking five or six prescribed medications after his back surgery. And the doctor, when he saw the list, said that a couple of them were not allowed. So he was not allowed to fight. He would have tested positive. And so knowing that the, the commission could not allow, could not license him, uh, Riggs felt, felt that, you know, he he didn't know. He didn't realize that there were banned substances. I uh, felt badly for Luke Stewart for training, cutting weight for a fight that wouldn't happen. But 
you know, that's, that's just kind of how it works sometimes. And I could see Riggs manager, Ken Pavia standing behind him. I think if this were to happen today, um, there would have been, I that man, there would have been a lot stronger of a reaction to it because fighters are, and their management are really expected to know what they're putting in their body and, you know, that sort of thing. But that's, that's why the fight didn't happen. Riggs was uh, on some, some drugs that were prescribed to him legally. And, and, but some of them, a couple of them were banned. And so he would have, uh, he would have tested positive, so they wouldn't let him fight. So that's what happened there. Probably better. Um, would have been suspended for a long time, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. Testing. If if he had fought, and and God forbid, if and he, I believe he said that he felt like the drugs would have been out of out of his system by the time he got into the cage. So maybe he wouldn't have tested positive, but. You know, we always say, and I, I don't know of it ever happening, but where like a really brutal knockout happens and, um, you know, so the, the, the guy, you know, the victim is really, really injured, really hurt. And then the guy that hurt him to test positive for something after the fight, like a steroid that maybe gave him more strength. I mean, God forbid, like something like that would happen. I mean, if Riggs was on stuff, it was, it was pain medication, obviously. So uh, it wouldn't have been that type of situation, but you know, again, better safe than sorry. All right, next fight, 135-pound bantamweight fight between Chris Carriasso and Anthony Figueroa. Carriasso defeats Figueroa via submission, coming by way of rear naked choke at 434 of the second round. Uh, this was a rematch as Carriasso had beaten Figueroa at strike force uh, Shamrock versus Baroni, where he'd gotten a decision win, and now Ant Dog would seek revenge, but unfortunately, he would not be able to get it. The fight was all Carriasso pretty much from start to finish. He would take down Figueroa in both rounds, eventually working in the rear naked choke finish close to the end of the second. Big win for for Carriasso for sure. Yeah, this was a good fight. Uh, Figueroa was totally outmatched, unable to counter the takedown, and uh, he could just could not fight off his back. And uh, yeah, this was pretty one sided. Yeah, uh, but Carriasso would get his chance on the bigger stages in MMA. He'd go on a long run in the WEC and the UFC, fought exclusively for those two promotions from 2010 to 2015, faced some huge names like Henry Cejudo, Demetrius Johnson, who he actually got a flyweight title, UFC flyweight title shot against, and Sergio Pettis lost to all them. He did get wins over Louis Smolka and Takiya Mizugaki. He retired in 2015 with a 17-8 record. As for his opponent, Anthony Antdog Figueroa, got to be hard to lose two, you know, two two bouts to the same fighter. Um, this would actually be the last that we would see of of well of both these guys, but of of Figueroa and Strikeforce. This he was done with the promotion after this. Uh, he would never quite make it to another big promotion. He ended his career at ten eight and one in two thousand seventeen. He's still trading fighters and recently cornered one at a Bellator event. And uh, some breaking news: uh, I actually, as we record this, got in touch with Anthony uh, earlier today, and he's going to be our guest uh, on our next uh, episode. I'm looking forward to talking with him, a guy that was part of Strike Force for several of their events early on. He comes from Kung Lee's uh, fight team. He opened a gym up in Gilroy, actually, which is south of San Jose. I lived there. I actually trained a couple times at his gym and and worked with him a little bit. And so we, we've reconnected, and he's going to be our guest. And I'm looking forward to this. This is not something where we're having a massive Strike Force star on, on the show, um, but we're having somebody that was an important part of the undercard of several of several strike force events. And so I want to talk about things from his perspective and talk about, you know, what it was to, what it was like to be a fighter at his level. And of course, what he's up to now. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and that will be our, our next interview episode. So yeah, hope everybody else is looking forward to that as well. 
All right, the next fight, 185-pound fight. Jeremiah Metcalf defeated Raymond Daniels via submission, coming by way of rear naked choke at 59 seconds of the second round. This fight was intended to be a showcase for Daniels, and it was going to be his MMA debut. And the press, the press release announcing this fight really laid it on thick, so I'm going to read a couple quotes from the press release, if you'll bear with me. Quote, already being hailed as the second coming of Strikeforce World Middleweight Champion Kung Lee, uh, cut in right there, uh, Talk about some pressure. <laughs> the second coming of the guy that just won the middleweight title. Uh, but anyways, uh, Daniels recognizes the number one sport karate fighter in the world, holds a sixth degree black belt in Kempo and Shotokan karate, as well as a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. He packs a thrilling dynamic fighting style that is strikingly similar to Lee. Uh, I could see what he did there with strikingly similar. So did there. <laughs> also a guru of traditional martial arts. I'm going to give MMA fans something they've never seen before, said Daniels, a resident of Long Beach, California. I want to become the greatest fighter of all time. Anybody that steps in front of me is just going to be on my next highlight reel, an obstacle that's standing in my path to greatness, end quote. Oh, my God. Quite a mouthful there. Uh, however, Daniels was stepping in right into the fire with an opponent like Jeremiah Metcalf. He was 8-4, and four and he was riding a three-fight win streak. Uh, before the opening bell, I want to point out Daniels did something that in all my years of watching fights I've never seen before. He did this kind of samurai pose in the corner with this like little booty shake dance thing and then spun around to face Metcalf. It was weirdly entertaining. I, I did that stand Josh, did you see that? Did that stand out to oh my, you? Oh my goodness. This is exactly the kind of thing I'd want to comment on. I'm so mad at myself. I must have uh, checked my phone or something because I don't remember this. I don't. Oh, I don't. you need to go back. It, well, so okay. To be fair, it oh. was not the camera was not focused on him. It was oh, one of those like crane shots from like f like kind of far oh. away. So okay. it, it wasn't like the camera was like you know in tight on him or anything like that. The camera was kind of far away when he did it. So you had to kind of be watching for it. And not that I was like purposely watching for it or anything, but it just, it caught my attention. I was like, what, what was that? And I like ran it back and I'm like, what was that dude? Seriously. So well, yeah, you if, need to if, go back and look at that. Phil, if you found a booty shake dance, weirdly entertaining, I'm going to watch that. And yeah. I'm going to comment <laughs> on our next show. I, it, it was, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it was, it was weirdly entertaining. So, uh, but once the fight started, Metcalf just, I mean, overwhelmed uh, Daniels. I mean, it just he knew he needed to get the fight to the ground right away, and Metcalf grabbed a, a clinch and dragged Daniels to the mat, and that's where the fight stayed pretty much the, the entire time. And Metcalf got in a, a really tight rear naked choke from the top and with blood and what looked like snot or maybe saliva kind of coming out of his, his face. Daniels was forced to tap out, and it just, it was, it just was really, it was all Metcalf, really. Yeah, this was a really impressive fight. I, I thought that Metcalf adjusted well. Uh, Daniels, I thought at the beginning, he came in kind of hot. He came in with a sense of urgency, and uh, Metcalf adjusted. I, I, there was a submission attempt where Daniels almost looked like, you know, he may have had it, him, him uh fully i think it was sort of like um i don't know if you remember the exact one but it was sort of like a neck crank he had him in sort of a side headlock and uh metcalf just was calm cool he pulled out of it and it was all over he just 
jumped on him and stayed on top of him and just, you know, would not let him breathe. And so I thought that was, it was a bit of a comeback and I was, I was happy to see that he was resilient enough. Do you, do you remember that, that hold that he had him in? It was sort yeah. of like he was standing and he was trying to choke him out, but it was, I was not, he didn't really have it in, but he was trying to sink it in. Yeah. He, he it was, uh, yeah. It, but I mean, regardless of, of, getting in or getting out of anything. I mean, Metcalf just, it was just not a fair fight in the end. I mean, that this is, this is what happens when you have boxers or kickboxers come in and just think they can just come in and do what they do in, in, in the ring. And that they think they can just come in the cage and do the same thing. It's why when people talk about a guy like, uh, Mayweather coming in, it's dude, any, ah, Mayweather wouldn't last 30 seconds. No, I'm because, because what'll happen is an MMA fighter will get inside and they'll take you down. They'll trip you and take you down, and you'll end up on your back. And then your punches don't do anything from the bottom, and and then that's it. Like it's just it's how it works. So as long as the guy doesn't try to play your game, if you're a boxer or a kickboxer, you've just got pretty much no chance other than the guy being dumb and staying on the feet with you. So and that's exactly what we saw, you know. And and so yeah, but uh, this would be it for Metcalf and Strike Force. Daniels would also be one and done, but we have got to talk about Raymond Daniels. I did not recognize the name. I did not recognize who he was until I started doing my research. Dude, this guy came back into MMA after a long hiatus, and this is the guy that landed the spinning, jumping 720 right hand in Bellator in 2019 to get one of the greatest KOs in MMA history. Did you Do you know what I'm talking about, Josh? Did you see that? Mm, no, I don't. Does not ring a bell. You need to look that up. Like, just look up like seven twenty KO Bellator or something like that. Because that, uh, like, in fact, do me a favor. Look it up now while I'm ta- while I'm talking, and see if you can find it. Because it is one of the greatest KOs. It looks like something out of a movie, but. I mean, it's and I will we'll find it and we'll tweet it out and post it and, and all that stuff. But Daniels just fought in Bellator as we record this in November 2020. He just fought in Bellator in September and he had the fight stopped for accidental low blows, which I actually remember seeing that replay, too. And then on top of all that, he married Sage Northcutt's sister in 2019. So. Daniels is all up in MMA now. He's back. I, I had no idea that he'd ever fought in MMA before. But before coming back in, he Daniels has had this amazing run in kickboxing, including winning eight straight in Bellator kickboxing, which I, I've heard of Bellator kickboxing, but I didn't know realize that it was still going. Uh, but he's the welterweight champion in Bellator kickboxing. And overall, he's 35-3 and three in kickboxing. I had no idea that he had gone... I just I didn't had didn't realize who he was, and now I do. So yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. And I, I'm gonna. Well, I, I, I just sorry to interrupt, but I just watched it, and that was Kerry Von Eric right there. Yeah, that was that was, that was, that was a tornado <laughs> punch, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was like you're right. It was like a 720. You got to watch it. You got to slow it down. You got to watch it a few times to exactly see how he did this. But it was almost like a, if he were on skates, it would have been like a triple lutz or something you know he just like spun in the air and then god can you imagine being that guy i mean how embarrassing like it's bad enough you're getting knocked out <laughs> you're knocked out with like a you know highlight reel tv sort of punch that is never going to happen again probably yeah i i you got to feel for the guy that <laughs> you got to feel for the guy that got knocked out but that was an incredible incredible uh strike and so how about yeah. longevity for that guy i mean yeah geez. yeah sticking with it this long yeah so, 
uh, maybe we'll look to get him on the show. I think that'd be a pretty fascinating conversation. So maybe we'll maybe we'll look to do that. But uh, but yeah, all right. So that that closes out the the undercard. Now we're on the main card at 185 pounds. Eric Lawson defeated Jesse Gillespie via submission, coming by way of rear naked choke at 103 of the first round. Both Lawson and Gillespie had fought in strike force before with Lawson getting a real nice win over Josh Neal at four men enter one man survives while Gillespie had beaten Dave Martin and lost Jesse Jones inside the hexagon to open up his MMA career. Weirdly MMA weekly's recap recap has no mention of this fight. I think this fight actually took place after the main event. I think this was a, a swing bout. And I, I so I I'm guessing that whoever MMA weekly had in the house, to cover the event, didn't realize that there was Left. another fight or <laughs> didn't want to be there for another fight. Mm-hmm. And so he took off. So all we know is the result. We don't actually have a, a breakdown of the actual action, but being that it was 63 seconds long and it was a submission, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'd say a lot can happen in a minute inside the cage. So who knows? But um, all we, you know, it obviously was a good win uh, for Lawson and, and both these guys will be back in strike force and actually at the same show, they'd both be back for strike force at the playboy mansion too. So we'll be dis- discussing them more in the future. All right. At 145 pounds, Misha Tate defeated Elena Maxwell via unanimous decision. Uh, this would be cupcake versus beef. Two of the more unique nicknames in MMA. She's not uh, cupcake yet, though. I, no, I, 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 I mean, yeah, maybe she, yeah, she, she was not cupcake yet. True, that is true. So we'll, I guess we'll let that slide. But you know, still, I do, sounds... I do my deep research on this show, Phil. Okay, so. okay. Well, you scooped, you scooped me there. <laughs> but it's just weird for yeah. two confectionery, you know, two food <laughs> uh, nicknames to be going up against each other, even if they weren't actually. Didn't have those nicknames at that time. Uh, but T- Tate, or Tit, <laughs> easy for me to say. Tate would be making her Strike Force debut. Maxwell had lost to Junior Crono in the first ever Strike Force women's fight. So here we go. Getting into it, Misha got the fight to the mat very early, worked her ground game uh, the whole first round. She got an arm bar on, but Maxwell defended well with just a few seconds left. Tate got it fully locked in, and you could see the arm hyperextending. Uh, the horn went off, and it, I mean, it was so close that Maxwell wasn't, he wasn't even sure if the ref hadn't stopped the fight. Uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. I saw a tap. Like, I, I don't know if you saw the tap. I saw the tap. She tapped. Uh, really? She did, I, she, no, I, I don't remember seeing a tap. She, maybe you want to go back and watch it. Yeah, but, yeah but I'll have she, to. She did like a, like a three little soft tap. And then she changed her mind and the round was over. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Actually, I was kind of impressed by Maxwell. I did like the fact that she was able to uh, try to fight off the armbar. At one point, she kind of wrapped her legs around Tate's head, and uh, she she fought it for as while for as long as she could. Most of the time, you see them just trying to hold their own arm with one hand against the other person, trying to pull with two arms to straighten out the arm. And I hadn't seen her somebody try to roll their legs up on their opponent and actually squeeze to buy time. <clears throat> Tate was relentless on top. Uh, I mean, she really wanted that submission. Uh, she showed a lot of fire. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt like she tapped. And they showed some replays, and it looked like she, she did. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, maybe she wasn't... Maybe she didn't tap her own body. She was just almost tapping three times. But it looked like a tap to me. 
Well, the fact that she was basically like asking the ref afterward, like, did you stop it? Like once the, 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 the horn went off to end the round, that lends credibility to the idea that she maybe did tap. And so yeah. she was like, you know, is it over? And yeah, so I, I guess that makes sense, you know, but, but regardless, uh, she would end up losing the fight anyway. So I guess in the end it didn't matter, but the second round was almost a replay of the first with Tate getting a takedown right away. Maxwell, kind of kept out of trouble and she survived in the end but uh but but tate was it was all tate in the second round too yeah it was basically um how long is it going to take tate to actually pull this off uh maxwell fought well to defend herself but there was only one direction this fight was headed yeah absolutely uh maxwell probably won the third round she used her ground game but it really wasn't enough as she needed to finish after two dominating rounds from tate so we saw a unanimous decision victory for misha yeah, I like Maxwell. I thought she was game. She did a good job. Uh, Tate obviously would become one of the biggest uh, female fighters in Strike Force and the UFC. She never did. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. You know, she 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 eventually won the UFC championship, and uh, she um, you know she beat Holly Holm, who beat conquered Ronda. So that was a great thing for her. Uh, but it's going to be cool to talk to watch uh, Misha as her rise here, much like we have been watching with Gilbert Melendez and Kung Lee and Josh Thompson. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking forward to talking more about her. Uh, but Maxwell would not strike would not fight in Strike Force again. She would end her career. Uh, at seven and four in 2012, Tate, of course, would become a big part of Strike Force as we just briefly discussed. Eventually, she would win the women's bantamweight title and set up one of the biggest feuds in Strike Force and really women's MMA history uh, with Ronda Rousey. So we'll be discussing her a lot more in the future. All right, we're the we're to the first of our two Strike Force title fights. At 205 pounds, Bobby Southworth defeated Anthony Ruiz via unanimous decision to retain the Strike Force light heavyweight title. As mentioned, this was a rematch. This time with the title on the line, Ruiz, uh, while he had after after the fight with Southworth had stayed active, he beat Jimmy Ambrose and Brad Imes, who I think was called the Hillbilly Heartthrob. I think was his. Uh, his nickname when he was on the ultimate fighter and in the UFC, if I remember correctly, something like that. Uh, I think he was like a, he's pretty big guy. And I think he ended up being a fire. I think he was a firefighter, but yeah, I think he was, I think he was the hillbilly heartthrob. Anyways, uh, Ruiz beat both those guys in regional promotion. Southworth had been on the sidelines since that fight. And this was a big shot for Ruiz. I mean, Ruiz got that big TKO win over the champ. We've talked before. I'm not really a fan of non-title fights, uh, and for champions. And so this, uh, you know, not really a huge, big, you know, not a huge fan of that. And Ruiz kind of, you know, got on the short end of the stick because of that, because he could have been the champion coming into this, but uh, Kung Lee, the newly minted strike force middleweight champion joined the commentators for this one. Very nice first round for the champion. Southworth almost got a, a, a nice arm bar locked in. Good showing for him. Ruiz was looking a little tired to open up the second, but he did do better getting top position for a bit. Uh, but this fight was really a grind. That was really the story of this fight. Both fighters were tired heading into the third round, a lot more mat work uh, with that round. And then, then in the fourth and the fifth and just not really an exciting fight. I mean, strategically very smart uh, game plan for the champion. It paid off with unanimous decision victory, but really not an aesthetically pleasing uh, fight at all. Uh, Southward would be back to defend his title against Babalu Sobral five months after this bout while Ruiz would be back the, at the next playboy mansion show. But Really, not a whole lot to that to, to that fight, you know. Really, not a whole lot to discuss. It was pretty workmanlike and and not the most not the most exciting. So, yeah, I mean, I've talked before about Bobby Southworth and just 
I don't know, no no X factor, and so I thought the fight was just pretty much pretty average. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. All right, moving forward, 155 pounds. Billy Evangelista defeated Nam Fan via split decision. Evangelista was six and zero and overall and three and zero in strike force coming into this one. He just beat Marlon Sims via stoppage at Shamrock versus Lee. Uh, clearly primed to make a, a real statement at 155 pounds, maybe even set himself up to be a uh, to be a title challenger. Uh, Fan was 14 and four. He had lost Josh Thompson at Strikeforce Triple Threat in December of 2006, then gone three and one, including a win over Saeed Awad, all outside the confines of the hexagon. Uh, the fight itself, this was a, a real war, very close fight. Lots of back and forth. Fan doing more on the feet. Evangelista doing more damage on the mat. They both worked hard, scored points. Uh, but it was Evangelista that got the split decision decision nod in the end, which I agreed with. Uh, very good overall fight. Very entertaining. Uh, Evangelista would be back multiple times in Strikeforce, including at the next Strikeforce event payback. Fan wouldn't compete for Strikeforce again, but he would make it on to the Ultimate Fighter Season 12. He would then have a long run in the UFC, getting wins over Leonard Garcia, who is one of my favorite all-time fighters, by the way, and Cole Miller. Fan also tried his hand at boxing, but that has not gone very well. He has a record of 3-8-1. He's on a combined 0-7 run in MMA and boxing, having last competed in 2018. All right, we have finally arrived. We are at the main event, so here we go. Josh Thompson defeated Gilbert Melendez via unanimous decision to win the strike force lightweight title. Thompson was riding a six-fight win streak coming into this title bout, having rebounded from his loss at Shamrock versus Gracie, which was Strikeforce's first event against Clay Guida in a fight to decide the promotion's first lightweight champion. Uh, then in his most recent bout, he dispatched Adam Lynn at the first Playboy Mansion show the previous September. Clearly, the punk was on a roll, and his injured shoulder that had postfine, postponed this fight earlier in 2008 had seemingly recovered. Melendez, for his part, had righted the ship after losing for the first time in Japan by TKOing little-regarded but durable Gabe Lemley at Shamrock versus Lee. Josh, as you mentioned, Thompson and Melendez were extremely familiar with each other, even considered each other to be a friend. Uh, they had trained and even sparred with one another, so they knew uh, their opponent's style, habits, strengths, weaknesses very, very well, which would make for an extremely interesting fight. Melendez, in a pre-fight interview, had said that he had been training with his usual crew of Jake Shields and the Diaz brothers with the, I don't think he had been nicknamed the, the Scrap Pack quite yet, uh, but that he had also headed down to San Diego and trained with Diego Sanchez for a while, which is... Interesting because Melendez and Sanchez would actually eventually fight in the UFC with Melendez getting the decision win uh, in that one. So this was this was shaping up to be a very interesting fight. And Gilbert's only UFC win, by the way, which ah, is that's very call. remarkable when you when you think about that. Um, but uh, so yeah, this we're going to talk about this. This is, this is a fantastic uh, f- a fight, you know, two two guys on the rise, and we got to see them on full display. Uh, Wrestling Observer Weekly said about the fight at this time, which may have played into a little bit of this idea that maybe Melendez underestimated Josh Thompson a little bit, but Thompson was coming off shoulder surgery and said he wasn't ready for the fight. Plus, he was battling a chest cold and a staph, staph infection in recent weeks. There were people who thought that he was making excuses in the event that he would lose to Melendez. Whether it was mind games to throw Melendez off, it was the best Thompson has ever looked as he dominated every facet of the match from Wrestling Observer Weekly. Oh, interesting. I I didn't realize that he was uh, sick and hurting before the fight, but this is 
this is yes, to borrow from Michael Cole. This is vintage Josh Thompson. I mean, this is this is his game, and yeah. I agree, he dominated every facet of the match. But um, so let's get into the fight itself. Nice takedown D from Josh in the first. He got a takedown of his own early on. Gil had his moments in the first, but I, I have to give it to Josh uh, 10-9 for sure. But I, I wanted to say something about Josh. I mean, having watched several of his fights in a row now, uh, I, he just always looked like he was having fun and really enjoying himself in the cage. I mean, in this fight specifically, I mean, he smiled, he winked, uh, he was energetic. I, I mean, just his passion and, and his enjoyment of what he does just bleeds through. I mean, he's literally one of the guys that the few guys that I can think of that I just remember having a smile on his face so often when he was in the cage. I mean, it just, it really stood out to me and it definitely stood out in this fight. Yeah. It feels like Josh Thompson is playing beach volleyball inside the hexagon. I mean, that's how relaxed he is. He, he's having fun. It, it, it's almost as though he's not risking his life inside a cage. He's just out there doing his thing. And so there's something about him where he was able to lose his mind, separate himself from the reality and just become so relaxed in that cage. And against Melendez in this fight, Melendez was stiff. He was a lot more stiff than we have seen him. He looked a lot more nervous. Um, Not not like pro wrestling stiff. You mean like just (laughs) in his movements and everything. Yeah, no, he was not Lex Luger stiff or ultimate warrior (laughs) stiff by any means. Uh, uh, he, he was just kind of uh, not not as fluid as he normally is inside the hexagon uh, where, you know, Josh, you know, you hit on a good point is, uh, you know, like a Conor McGregor, every time he fights, he's totally in control and he's putting on the show and this persona and he's trying to intimidate his opponent. And, and so he's really relaxed. Uh, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, they have some of these qualities, too, but you can tell. It's very much like, I'm going to intimidate you. But Josh, it's something very unique. It's it's just like he's hanging out with his buddies in the backyard, goofing off. It's a very unique quality. And I think that that's what makes him so entertaining to, to watch fight because he's so comfortable and in control. Yeah, and it very much showed through in this fight for sure. So I... I... I thought Josh looked great, and so let's let's continue on. Uh, the fight stayed on the feet in the second round, and I mean, just what a battle, you know? I mean, these two were trading shots and clinches with Gil getting a, a couple nice shots in. However, as the second round wore on, I feel like Josh was clearly getting the upper hand and gaining more confidence, got a nice takedown just as the buzzer went, had a big smile on his face after that because he knew that he probably sealed the round with that. Josh sort of resembled a rabbit to me in terms of the way he was moving. He was he was bouncing around. He was quick, not sudden, or was it sudden, not quick? Um, this is a Gordon Soli reference. Yeah. He was so much faster than Gilbert. It, it was amazing. He was one step ahead, and I don't know if Gilbert thought that Josh was just not going to be ready to go, but Thompson was just just. Uh, he fought a strategically better fight and he was anticipating what Gilbert would do and he was not letting Gilbert go there. And uh, that was, that's what was unique. It was a smart fight so far for Josh. I think they, I I really think AKA out strategized uh, Gracie's team with this one. I mean, they, they just, I think they just had such a perfect game plan. This was the epitome of, of coming in prepared, for your opponent and knowing what they were going to do 
and then keeping them from doing it for sure. Uh, but Josh's takedown D, I mean, it was just straight up on point. Gil was losing on the feet, couldn't get it to the mat, and that continued on in the third round. Uh, Melendez, Melendez realized, and I'm sure his corner was telling him, you need to be more aggressive. Uh, but Thompson was just able to withstand and fire back constantly, and I, I, it was another clear round for, for, for Josh. And I think Gilbert Melendez started to tire a bit in this round. You could see him taking deep breaths. His mouth was open big. Uh, you know, he tried to step up the action, but Josh said, I'm not having this. Like, you're not going to intimidate me. Uh, he fired back. And every time Gilbert decided I was going to use my boxing skills, Josh said, I'm going to use mine right back at you. And so he never gave Gilbert Melendez an opportunity to feel confident, to, to get in a groove, to get any kind of momentum. He was making Gilbert pay for everything that he was trying to dish out. And so if you're getting counterpunched when you're trying to throw a right hand, then you're less likely to punch. And that's what was happening. So Josh was just very much fearless in this round. Yeah, he was beating Gil to the punch, no question about it. Uh, but we were now in the championship rounds. In the fourth, Gil, whose corner had told him to press and put Josh on his back foot, kept moving forward. However, Josh got a couple nice takedowns, squelching any of Gil's momentum. I uh, then turned one of them into a pretty tight jaw crank from behind with the hooks in. And, you, you know, it's Josh, you've probably watched enough fights uh, like me. You've probably watched enough fights to realize when a guy is really in trouble. You just you kind of recognize when a body is contorted a certain way or there's a certain look on his face or there's a certain look in his eyes that, OK, I think this one's going to be it. I think I think they're I think he's got him. And I. I mean, I knew that I knew that Josh won by uh, decision, but if I had if I was seeing this fight live for the first time or I didn't know the outcome, I would have thought he might have had Gill because it was he had that that jaw crank, and I don't think that's the right name for the move. I don't know what you call it where you have your arm around their their jawline instead of underneath the neck or underneath mm -hmm. the throat. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had he had him on pretty tight and had the hooks in, and it looked like he was in trouble, but. Gil persevered, and after the round, Josh was smiling, super confident. I mean, he knew that he had this fight won. If he could just make it to the final bell, he knew that this was over. Yeah, this is this is the the round. Real where... quick, that was a stupid thing to say. He knew if he made it to the final bell that this was over. Doesn't matter who it is. If you make it to the final bell, it's over. So that was kind of dumb. But <laughs> he knew that if he made it to the final bell, that he would win. So there you go. <laughs> You're right. You know, you just reminded me. Um, had that round gone on a little bit longer, he might have submitted him. You know, I think it was the fact that, well, the the bell sounded. And also, people may not know, obviously, if you're a fight fan or if you fought, it's like, well, why doesn't Josh just squeeze him harder? You know, it takes a lot of energy to try to submit somebody. And you can only do that so long. And then Gilbert's fighting back. Uh, so, you know, this is already the fourth round. So, yeah, I think Gilbert got lucky that, that, that by the time he put on this hold, it was the end of the round. Uh, but he might have gone there. I don't know if Gilbert would have went out or if he would have tapped. Gilbert eventually did tap to um, Anthony Pettis, you know. So I don't know if, if Gilbert would have gone to sleep or not. But Josh Thompson definitely uh, was the, the man in this round as well. Yep. He was the man in all five of them. I mean, yeah. it's just the way it was. But in the fifth and last round, Thompson got Gill on the mat early. And other than that, the fight 
stayed on the feet in the in that final round. You've got it got to hand it to both guys. I mean, Gil kept pushing, looking for a Hail Mary, while Josh, to his credit, he did not play it safe. Uh, he was still engaging and battling and seeing if he could get a finish, but uh, incredible gas tank for both fighters. Uh, just especially Josh. I mean, so superb, superbly conditioned, and especially in this fight. And in the end, there were there was no question that Thompson had won. Huge respect between the fighters afterwards, hugs and handshakes. I mean, just an amazing battle, and and the heart and skill displayed by both was something to remember. And it's probably Thompson's crowning achievement in a very successful career. So good stuff. Hats off to both fighters, but Josh was definitely the better man on this night. Yeah, I think Gilbert was just uh, not prepared. He didn't expect Thompson to come in with his A-plus game. And Melendez was thinking, you know, I could probably win this with my B-plus, A-minus effort. And uh, he, he learned and he paid the price. Uh, Thompson also, I mean, he's always in good shape. He's, he's skinny and muscular. But in this fight, I mean, he looked amazing. I mean, he was in such good physical shape. And uh, Gilbert just... He got tired, you know, and he's outmatched. He's getting beat to the punch, and he's exhausted. I mean, all you're really doing there is hoping for a crazy sort of sort of knockout. And, uh, you know, the thing, and I think you'll talk about this in a second probably, uh, is that uh, just Thompson was uh, busier. You know, he threw more kicks. Uh, he threw punches. Uh, he did takedowns. He was more versatile. The only thing I didn't like about this was the announcers basically talking the entire fifth round about how Josh was the next champion. And I thought that it took a little bit away from the Hail Mary miracle shot that Gilbert, you know, may have had. You always have a shot no matter what. So um, I didn't like that, but that's more of a, an aesthetic thing. Uh, but I thought that that uh, Josh was uh, just really spectacular in a game plan. Remind me of Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey. Just, you know, let's do the thing that no one else has ever done to Ronda. And it helps that we're also so, you know, 5'10 or whatever she was. Uh, just winning the fight on the drawing board. That's what happened here. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. 100 um, percent I did want to mention there was I found a uh, I have not seen this yet but I as far as my research goes for this podcast but I was able to find a, uh, a, a page on the UFC site that laid out some fight stats for this and here's a few that stand out Thompson landed 42 percent of his significant strikes to only 19 percent for Melendez Melendez threw no leg kicks which was interesting but probably the biggest stat was that Thompson secured six of his nine takedown attempts. Melendez was zero for eight, zero for eight on takedowns, and so that's probably the difference, right there. I mean, so much of Melendez, yeah, he's obviously he's got uh, good striking, but so much of his game involves him grounding and pounding, and so when you can't get to the ground, you can't pound, and that that spells a uh, you know a loss for Melendez. So uh, I, I think that was a, the biggest difference right there. And uh, Gilbert would be out of the, out for ten months after this fight. He would return to the cage at Shamrock versus Diaz. Thompson would be back at the second Playboy Mansion show in a non-title fight, which we will discuss on a, an episode very soon. But yeah, that's uh, that's it for Melendez versus versus Thompson as far as the the event itself. Uh, so let's wrap things up and and we'll uh, we'll call it a day. But no fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after Melendez versus Thompson. As mentioned, the event drew seven thousand two hundred eighty-eight fans for a gain of three hundred fifty-five thousand four hundred eighty-seven dollars. Again, the UFC event that the major one that was closest to this drew three over three million dollars. I think it was three point three million. 
This one drew 355,000. So again, it just a massive, massive difference. Uh, total disclosed fighter payroll of $203,200. Josh Thompson made 35000 which included a win bonus of 15000 while Gilbert Melendez made 50000 Bobby Southworth made 25000 which included a $10,000 win bonus. Interestingly, Anthony Ruiz only got paid $200, but that was because he received most of his undisclosed pay in an advance prior to the fight, which I've never heard of. Uh, I'm sure it's happened, but I, I personally don't remember ever reading something like that. That was interesting. Misha Tate got paid $1,500. That's it. Now, she was only one and one coming into this. So she was, you know, she's not the Misha Tate of today, but she only made 1500 which included a win bonus of 500 Elena Maxwell got 4000 Billy Evangelista took in 14000 including a $7,000 win bonus, while Nam Fon got 10000 And again, if you want to see the full uh, list of pay, it's out there. But overall, I, sorry, go ahead. I just, you know, we need to do a whole entire podcast on fighter pay. Uh, it's just insane that uh, anyone's putting their life on the line on TV in a reputed promotion for fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> just I mean, you know, look the the event itself made three hundred fifty five thousand at the gate, and fighter payroll was two hundred of that. Yeah, uh, you know, I I don't know. I mean, how much more are you going to pay them? And and even if you threw ten k on everybody, that's still not that much money in comparison to training costs and again putting your health on the line. So it's it's. Like I said, I, I'm not. I'm gonna dissuade my kids from getting into fighting for money if I can. If I can help it. Or they, they need to go the CM Punk route, you know. Just yeah, walk, yeah. Just become a huge star. Five hundred grand on your yeah, first fight. Become a huge star <laughs> somewhere else, and then you know, and then go into it. But overall, a pretty entertaining event. Thompson put on a, a really a masterful display. Executed a perfect strategy against Melendez by stuffing every takedown attempt, and also not getting caught up in a firefight on the feet. Southworth retained his light heavyweight title, but once again, probably didn't gain a ton of new fans. He's just, I mean, he was just a grinder. I mean, that was his style. Uh, the Raymond Daniels experiment fizzled pretty quickly. And then we saw a potential new women's star in Misha Tate. So kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of moving parts from this, Josh, what did you think? Well, the main event was great. Obviously we just talked about that. Two of these tremendous young fighters who were giving their all, they're not even in their primes yet, you know, uh, they're, but they're right there. Uh, I think the show was hurt overall by the lack of other big names on the card. Obviously, we had Bobby Southworth on there. But um, I think it was just a lot of people who people were not familiar with. And there were a lot of fighters in the lower weights. And I think you need a good mix. You need to have a couple of named fighters, you know, throw in a heavyweight there or just a couple of chances for some more impressive knockouts. Unfortunately, there was a lot of ground um, game, a lot of uh, sort of stuff that had turned off a lot of the mainstream people before Griffin Bonner was this great stand-up fight. So I think it was hurt a little bit by that. Obviously, you can't control that, but you can do that through booking. And I think the bigger theme here is, you know, we've watched enough of these shows now, Phil, where we get a sense of how Strikeforce promotes its cards. And I think the biggest thing is inconsistency because we've had some really good Strikeforce shows, and then we have ones that have not been so great, like the Bob Sapp one in Seattle. And then um, you know, this one was leaning more toward average or less than average outside of the main event. So I think that's the big thing with Strike Force is just the inconsistency of the cards, the quality of fights, even 
this one we've got a, again a different announced crew although this you know boss Rutan was amazing um it's just kind of never know how to settle in at this stage when you're watching a strike force card obviously it's memorable because of thompson and melendez and it might have been thompson's best fight other than the nate diaz knockout which is just or tko which is just one of my favorites um and, and obviously it's the birth of misha T- yeah i i think you know and i just i think that we're realizing that one of the biggest things that strike force had to deal with especially early on was just a lack of depth I mean, you, you develop your own guys, of course, and they were developing guys like Kung Lee and Luke Stewart and Billy Evangelista and guys like that. But they're just, you know, you, you really, it's crazy. I mean, they're nowhere near as busy as the UFC, but they don't have enough big name fighters to fill up a card like this. I mean, then they were, by the way, you got to realize they were going to do the Josh Thompson, Gilbert Melendez fight on the same card as, as Shamrock versus Lee. I, I think it was better for them that that fight didn't happen because then they could main event another show with it. But, uh, you know, you realize you're light heavyweight champion. You can't really main event a show with, with him because the, the fights are not that exciting. And, and so what do you have besides this? And so I, I, I think the biggest thing that we see or the biggest issue that they had early on was just, again, that lack of depth. And it wouldn't continue. I mean, there would be – they would start to really develop stars, and we would see that. But as we go along, I, I, I'm interested to see – how much of this continued and how long it took to kind of turn the tide on that. All right, coming up next on Inside the Hexagon, we are going to be talking with Anthony Antdog Figueroa. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be an interesting discussion. This is going to be the first time that we talk to a fighter that actually lost on the most recent event episode. So that I think that's going to be intriguing to kind of get his perspective on that and, and talk a little bit about Strike Force in the early days. And so I'm looking forward to reconnecting with, with Anthony, and, and that's going to be a good discussion. So look for that next week. The next Strike Force event that we're going to be covering will be the second and final Playboy mansion show uh, on that card luke stewart returns joe riggs returns though they do not return against each other josh thompson is also back for a quick turnaround while we see the strike force debut of mitsuhiro ishida who had handed gilbert melendez his first loss the previous year so i'm looking forward to discussing that one with you josh uh, on social media make sure you check us out at inside the hexagon pod on on uh, instagram you can also find us on twitter uh, just look for at hexagon pod or again at inside the hexagon pod uh, you can also reach me at phil at inside the would love to hear from you if you have uh, re- requests for uh, people you'd like to see on the show if you have ideas if you have uh, feedback anything like that we want to make sure that we're putting out what you want so please reach out let us know what you think about the show would love to hear uh, from you uh, but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. 
You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.